Well, I'm back on the moors today and it's a little calmer. We found um, a place that's not on the top of the moor, which is always a winner but I'm with Alan Clark again and today we're doing our second episode about aircraft wrecks in and around this particular patch of the Longdondale Reservoirs. Last time we were over by Tintwistle Nar, so if you haven't listened to that one do go check that one out but today we're we're not too far away from Bleak Lobe and we are above what's this what did we say Roadswood and Torside. And we have been and done our walk, so we're just going to sit still today because trying to record and walk on moorland in this kind of heather, you're never going to hear one of us, I think. So we decided to sit down and actually pay respects because we are sat with our feet right next to a memorial. This one is a memorial for Bramer Edge. We're going to talk about some of the many crashes that happened in this particular area. I mean, I did a bit of a summarise from your website, Alan Peak district aircrashes.co.uk and within this small radius i picked out eight crashes 36 people have died two people have survived so we've got a few of those to kind of explain but should we start with where we are today what yeah. do you want to explain that so it was we sat on Bramer edge uh, overlooking Torside reservoir and roadswood we've got uh, the woodhead road on the opposite side of the valley from us and uh tintwistle now where we did last week's podcast about uh air crashes from and Bramar Edge so this is one of the crash sites where it was pretty late on it was 1956 when this particular crash happened can you tell us about what plane it was and what the journey was that it was taking yeah so the the plane was a a single engine high wing aircraft built by de Havilland Canada called a Beaver it was in service with the US Air Force and they called it L-20 L being for liaison and it was attached to a fighter unit down in Suffolk uh, they operated F-84 Thunderjet fighter bombers uh, but the the L-20 was used for moving personnel and equipment about the country and on the day that it crashed it was uh, being used to fly one of their pilots across to Burtonwood uh, near Warrington which is a big servicing centre for the US Air Force at the time they'd had one of their aircraft over for maintenance and the, the pilot who was a passenger on this aircraft was to fly that Thunder jet back to Suffolk but they never made it and no. I mean and this was a bit of human error from what I understand as to the reason that the crash happened yeah it was quite really quite an unusual crash this one that it wasn't so much the pilot in command of the aircraft that uh, made an error as a ground it was more a ground control error mm. uh, in identifying the aircraft on radar it's, by the time this crash happened in 1956 radar was in use mm. and the aircraft was being guided towards Burtonwood through cloud and poor visibility uh, by a ground controller with a radar set and unfortunately based on the information given to him by the pilot of this aircraft he misidentified a return on his radar I mean, both the, the pilot and the passenger or the other pilot were killed in this instance. 
it looks like when I delved into the the newspaper reports um it, it corroborated with some of the other reports which talk about um a chap called leslie simpson who was manning the tour side signal box um which we probably would be able to see if it was still here from uh, this vantage point i guess and he heard a dull thud high up on the hillside saw an orange glow uh, and called the emergency services and actually a car with two people had stopped and they saw the crash had happened and tried to climb up. But by the time they got here, there was nothing to be done uh, and found one of the bodies still in the cockpit and another one had been thrown out. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, there have been memorials, you know, crosses at this site, obviously for a number of years. We've found three different versions here as well. Yeah, and over the years, like you said, there have been several. But I think there's the remains... Well, there's the remains of a fourth one under my foot there. Yeah. Um, there's There used to be quite a large wooden cross here. I think that, that's rotted away over the years and has completely disappeared. At your feet here, is this bits of the aircraft that are yep. at the foot so of the cross? What is it? These are just small shards of aluminium, from the mostly from the front end of the aircraft, because that's what received most of the damage in the crash. Mm. The tail and both wings were still fairly intact. There's a small piece here which looks like a, a tree root uh, that's a piece that's been uh, melted in the post-crash fire and then solidified to form this uh, sort of tree root like shape wow. it's amazing you can just pick that up and like be like that's a bit of plain because most people would just walk past this on the hillside and think it was a very weird shaped stone wow i mean the the view here is spectacular it's it's reasonably tough to get here this is access land that we're on there are fences and um a few paths but not really marked on a map um how would you describe for people you know who may be looking at visiting this particular site it's probably one of the, the more difficult ones to get to even though it's so close to a road it's there's, there's no direct route up here we've come up from the little reservoirs above padfield and come up round the edge of Ogden Clough and along uh, Brammer Edge itself. Alternatively, you come up the Pennine Way from Reap's Farm, but there's quite a bit of doubling back to be done on that route. Mm. It, it just makes it a little awkward to get to this one. Yeah, I mean, you have got the, the grid reference on your website and also in your book as well, so people can find out more, but you definitely need to maybe be pretty good at some map reading and looking for stones, I think. Uh, big, big boulders is the key for this one. <laughs> let's um talk about some of the other oh there's a plane heading just over us now it's a big one you'll probably know what that is it looks like an airbus a320 all right okay that's... Might, might be easy jet <laughs> it didn't look orange enough to me no it, it's a little bit dark but it's hot i can't tell from this distance now it has gone quite dark do you know what i'm just going to be grateful that i can see because in recent days i've not been able to see past 10 meters so i'm grateful that today i can see let's talk about some of the other crashes which have happened on this side of the moor the the reservoir side so um sykes moor a particularly gruesome crash I think when I read the details about this one, I have got to say I was pretty horrified. Uh, and I'll, I'll, to keep this podcast family friendly, I'm not going to go into the graphic description of what was found. But 
both people aboard this particular plane didn't make it. Um, so it was the 30th of January 1939 and keep the 30th of January in your mind because that date seems to be quite significant in this area. Tell us what plane it was and what was happening with this particular one Alan. Uh, so it was a Bristol Blenheim uh, which was a fighter aircraft used by the RAF at the time. It was a big twin engine aircraft, later became a bomber but in its early use, it was used as a heavy long range fighter. And it was with number 64 squadron at the RAF at uh, Church Fenton, which is between Leeds and York, being flown by two crew, uh, one of them a South African volunteer in the RAF and another from what at the time was Southern Rhodesia, uh, nowadays Zimbabwe. Uh, again, he was in the RAF, but he traveled from Southern Africa to uh, enlist in the RAF. They were both new to the squadron, so were given the aircraft for part of the day to fly around the, the York area to get f familiar with the area around their airfield. Uh, they'd strayed a bit too far away and had ended, ended up in poor visibility over the Pennines. The pilot flying lost control of the aircraft and it dived into Sykes Moor on the opposite side of Torside Clough from the Pennine Way, mm. where both of the, uh, the men on board were killed. I mean, it took... 13 days or 13, 14 days for someone to find this. You know, I imagine it was reported missing. It hadn't come back. People didn't know where it was and the search was put out. But it wasn't till there was a local walker who was out. He was trying to catch up with his friends, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a member of a, a local walking group. From... I, like, I like the name of it. Openshaw Out of Doors Club. I like that. Yeah, uh... I guess they probably all worked in the, the heavy industry that was uh, around Openshaw at the time. They'd got the train to Marple that morning and the chap who found the crash site, he'd ended up setting off late and arrived at Marple after his friends had departed. And I think it was their intention to get the train back, probably from Croden Station. Yeah. as uh, That seems to be where he was heading to when he located the crash site. Uh, it was, this was before the time of the Pennine Way. He'd gone up from Marple onto Mellor, then probably Mill Hill, Kinder, across to Bleaklow, yeah. across the Snake Pass, over the top of Bleaklow Head, and was coming down across Sykes Moor. Well, he was having a sandwich, wasn't yeah. he? That, we've got to remember, this is the detail the paper told us, he was having a sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> he saw he, what he, he thought was a tent. He, yeah, he did. He thought, he thought he could see a tent further out onto the moor from where he was which he thought was a little bit unusual, so decided to go and investigate it and found it was actually the remains of a parachute billowing in the wind. Yeah, and then what happened next, I guess, was the stuff that nightmares are made of. He yeah, pretty much found body parts, shall we say, um, strewn around um, the moor. He was obviously pretty scared and run down to the nearest place which would be Reap's Farm which again we can see it's now at the bottom of um, the Pennine Way if people know that and where the Longdendale Trail meet but they didn't have a telephone so then he had to go to Torside Signal Box who then called the emergency services but, but by the time they got here they managed to get the stretchers up to the top of the moor but they couldn't find or get everything they needed, so had to abandon the search, come back down, and then go back the next day with RAF personnel kind of there as guards, I guess, um, to prevent people 
come in and sightseeing and souvenir hunting and you know the identification process of that must have been awful which was done in Glossop Mortuary but they they put the verdict of the death um, as death by misadventure I mean gosh yeah it was uh, certainly wouldn't have been fun doing that recovery no. yeah it was uh, the aircraft was more or less buried in the in the moor uh, period photographs showed just the tail of the aircraft as a recognisable item sticking out of the ground. Mm. Yeah, and you know, another account said that um, their bodies kind of were found some distance back from the from the plane, and it suggested that they tried to bail out, but they were, you know, already too close to the ground to actually really make use of the parachutes. I mean, and the photos of the the plane were in were taken by the police photographer at the time, and um, a chap called Harry Buxton, his daughter Margaret Buxton, published some of the collection of his photos of his work over many years as a police photographer. And there, you're right, you can see the plane, and very clearly is the the Mark L one four seven six. Um, so four years later, so that particular crash wasn't during the time of the war. But four years later, to the day, another crash happened not that far away at Birkenbank Moss. What was this particular plane and what happened here? Yeah, so f- four years to the day after the Blenheim crashed on Sykes Moor, but further east along uh, the southern edge of Longendale, a Vickers Wellington twin engine medium bomber flew into Birkenbank Moss. It was on a what was called a bullseye exercise from an RAF station in Leicestershire. Uh, bullseye was a cross-country navigation exercise where there were targets that would be simulatedly bombed. So there would be an infrared light source on the ground and they had a camera with infrared sensitive film on the aircraft and when they thought they were over the target they would expose the film and then when they returned to their airfield that film would be developed and they would see if they'd bombed the target. Uh, but the aircraft had strayed well off course and it was while attempting to find where they, they were that the aircraft flew into uh, the moorland. And it wasn't the only plane that was part of that particular pack that crashed that day either. There was another Wellington. Yeah, so the unit they were from was number 28 operational training unit. They lost a second aircraft on the, the very same exercise at, down near Stoke-on-Trent. Uh, that crashed into a, a line of trees and then across a field. Uh, a second unit that was based uh, just into Derbyshire, number 27 operational training unit, also lost an aircraft doing a bullseye exercise on the same night near Matlock. Wow. Yeah, so, they, they, you know, the, the, the route was meant to take, what, six and a half to seven hours. I was trying to work out, I mean, you, your book brilliantly goes into, like, the, the, the job description. So some of the people on board, like wireless operator, bomb aimer, navigator. I mean, so there were, what, one, two, three, four, five people on this particular plane. Yeah, a Wellington had a crew of five. Two of the crew of this aircraft survived the crash. They're the only survivors from uh, crashes on Bleaklow. Yes. Fortunate for them. Yeah. I mean, then, so their names were... Um, it sounded like the, the three that were at the front of the bomber were killed instantly, but um, the navigator, pilot officer Charles Leslie Grisdale and the sergeant Miller survived. They were taken to Ashton Hospital. 
I mean, as a journalist, I'm always intrigued by well, what happened next, you know, as I'm sure that you've kind of delved in and done some research. And I did look into Charles Leslie Grisdale because I thought, well, I've got more names to work out there. It's a bit easier to track someone down than a Sergeant Miller. Um, and I found a blog online, which was someone tracking down their family history. And there they talked about the same Charles Leslie Grisdale, who... Unbelievably, so he had this crash which happened in January 1943. He then returned to work, was part of the RAF exercise going over to Germany to Kazil in October 1943. During that particular exercise, had another plane crash but survived, but somehow was taken as a prisoner of war. Um, one of the camps there. I don't know how we got out of the camp, whether he escaped before the end of the war or when the war finished, he managed to come back. But he returned to the Wirral to his wife and young children. His brother and his dad didn't return from the war, unfortunately. But Charles lived on the Wirral and actually died aged 61 in 1972. So as far as we can tell, he lived a full life i mean to survive two crashes in one year that's just amazing yeah i think it was something that happened quite a bit to raf aircrew at the time that they they would maybe go through a couple of incidents during the training and then it was part luck as to whether they survived their operational tour or not and he he was lucky to uh to be shot down and survive that incident and be taken prisoner many aircrew who were in bomber command didn't uh share that fate Oh, you know, it's like the the man who survived a crash on Birkenbank. I mean, I, I'm trying to see whether when um, we lean forwards, whether it is just no, in front of us, further it, round. It's hidden around the corner. We can see... So basically above Woodhead Reservoir, really? Yeah, it's above the far end of Woodhead Reservoir. So from where we're looking, the furthest we can see is old quarry workings uh, uh, between Wildbore Clough and Shining Clough. Uh, but it's Birkenbank Moss is further beyond on the far side of uh, Shining Clough. I imagine that will be a very particular tough crash site to find. Maybe you're going up um, from where the Woodhead Tunnels is, up past Middle Black Clough, like waterfalls along the paths up that way. Um... Yeah, the easiest way up is up the near Black Clough path. Then you take a right across onto the moorland. Last time I was at the site, there was a wooden post there, and it's one of very few wooden posts on that bit of moor, so it's... If you get a few hundred metres out from the path and you see a wooden post, you head towards it. and It might just be a pile of gravel for the grouse, but it might be the crash site of Wellington. Well, and that's it because, you know, we were mentioning last time how it's illegal to take home any kind of parts of crash. And, and not all of them have memorials. It's not always obvious. Some of them, you know, all the different parts were taken down away from them or, or they've been stolen by souvenir hunters, I suppose. We're talking back, you know, many, many years. And obviously the weather here as well is so... You know, there could be like flood damage or, yeah, all kinds of things that might disrupt the, the site and the memorials. Yeah, and talking of flood damage, uh, leaving the Longendale, going over to the far side of Bleaklow, the C-47 crash site in Ashton Clough, that was almost scoured clean by flooding in 2003. Mm -hmm. There were some quite big pieces of the aircraft that were there then and following the flooding which affected Glossop Town Centre at the time, those parts have disappeared and they're definitely they're definitely still on the hill but they're buried in all the flood debris down the bottom of ashton clough somewhere 
Well, let's move over to, to Bleaklow then. So it's not technically part of the patch, I suppose, I'm looking into here, but we can't not sit here and, and not mention the Bleaklow crashes because we're so close to it and so many people talk about the Bleaklow crashes, one in particular. So that, that one you mentioned there, so it's a Douglas C-47. It happened in 1945. Seven people were killed. We think the crash site was on Shelf Moor. Um, you added in, in, I think it was in your book, that you, you thought that this aircraft was carrying a jeep in its cargo. I mean, that sounds like a reasonably big plane. Yeah, it was carrying a jeep. There's uh, a photograph of it in the accident report for the aircraft. Mm-hmm. It looks like that the crew were probably killed by the jeep. It was strapped down in the back of the aircraft, but on impact, its straps broke and the jeep continued by inertia out the front of the aircraft. Gosh. And unfortunately probably killed most of the the crew and passengers wow um there is a memorial there or there was a memorial or do you think that this is one of those sites where you're not sure what you really see now no i I was there a couple of weeks ago and there's a a small collection of crosses at the site at the moment Mm. nearby there's another crash site uh, of a avro lancaster that has a an actual built stone memorial with a brass plaque on it so this is the one at James Thorne, is that? Yeah? Yep. 1945, six people were killed here. Yeah, that aircraft would normally have had a crew of seven, but it only had six on the day that it crashed. And it was the fact that it only had six that it was actually the reason that it crashed, because the seventh member of the crew who wasn't on board was the aircraft's navigator. Right. Oh, that's awkward, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So then there is um, another one, 1941. I don't know how to say the name of the plane. So what is this? The Bolton Paul Defiant. How do you say that in like normal speak? I say exactly the same. <laughs> Bol- Bolton Paul Defiant. There we go. Okay. You, you just know like all the lingos of like how to make it sound cool and stuff. I'm like the Bolton Paul Defiant of 1941. <laughs> in, this one was near Bleak Low Stones, which I imagine is... A lot of people who've been in this area would know it's not the one, which we'll get to in a moment. But the rumour was that this might have come under fire from a Spitfire earlier on, although it's never been proven. And it took a month before they located this one. Yeah, it does seem to be that it was purely a rumour that the aircraft had been attacked by friendly fire off the the Durham coast. It looks like it was just damage that the aircraft suffered as a result of the crash that was taken to be possible bullet impacts. Well, it was 1941, and as we mentioned last time, during the Second World War, there was censorship, so there was a blackout of reporting plane crashes, so I guess that does allow a lot more room for rumours and uh, things to be kind of manipulated, I suppose, the story. But you obviously went to some of the military archives and saw the crash reports and have a bit more idea of what really happened, I suppose. Uh, the aircraft was from a unit based in Lincolnshire and it looks like that it was simply just the pilot getting lost that was the cause of the crash. He'd been up to Edinburgh and had a passenger on board who was... He was an RAF airman, but he didn't fly. He was uh, ground crew, but he was quite a good golfer. And there's nothing that we've been able to find in any of the, the official records that says why he was in Edinburgh but it looks like there may have been some kind of a golf tournament between RAF units, unofficially. Right. And he'd gone up to Edinburgh and then was getting a lift back in the aircraft. 
and so there was just the pilot flying and his passenger and they'd ended up straying into uh, mist and low cloud along the eastern side of the Pennines on the way south. The weather that day around Edinburgh certainly wasn't very good. A unit operating from the Another airfield close to where they left from lost another Defiant on the hills just south of Edinburgh in Cloud. In fact, there, were, there seems to have been some confusion with that Defiant and this one in reports of an aircraft crashing on that day near Edinburgh when the aircraft that crashed at near Bleatlow Stones had failed to arrive. At the time, that aircraft was still missing. Right. And then a report of a crash near Edinburgh came in and there was that little bit of time where it was like, which one is it? And then they realised it was the one that was based near Edinburgh that had crashed near Edinburgh. And this one had gone missing somewhere else along the route south to Lincolnshire. A search was started by the unit that this aircraft came from. They expected the the pilot to uh, follow the east coast down to uh, Lincolnshire and then back inland. So they were searching offshore in the North Sea. Oh my goodness. Expecting the aircraft to be be in the water. So no wonder it took a month then. You know, I mean, I do wonder who was walking about these moors during the Second World War. I guess people had other things to to do, other things to think about, rationing, you know, working. The factories and the mills around here were actually one of the one of the mills, Waterside Mill, just at the other end of the reservoirs, was actually making parachutes for the Second World War. You know, wouldn't that be a weird act of fate if that was one of the parachutes in one of the planes that crashed here? Gosh. The the other crash, which a lot of people talk about, it's kind of become a bit social media famous, I suppose. Uh, the Bleaklow B-29A, which a lot of people go visit because I guess there's a lot more to see. And there were 13 people who were killed so this is higher shelf stones what i didn't realize about this was that they were carrying the payroll for u.s personnel when they crashed although they did manage to recover that i mean what went wrong here because 13 people aboard this sounds like 1948 so it was after the war what would have been happening here so the aircraft is a boeing b-29 which was a large four-engine bomber that this aircraft was a equipped with cameras to take photographs of the battlefield and was over supporting a bomber unit by photographing the inner German border between West Germany and East Germany. At the time in late 1948 we were in the period of the Berlin blockade and uh, certainly heightened tensions between the Western Allies and the Soviet Union. Uh, But on the day of the crash, the 3rd of November 1948, the crew of this aircraft had left RAF Scampton tasked with a practice flight. They were to photograph RAF Burtonwood, so that was what was on their clearance form for the flight, and then return to RAF Scampton with those photographs to be developed and tell how good they had been at taking photographs of of a target. So it was practising, really, for them when they went over to Germany to do it for real? Yes. And was everyone American on board then? Yes, they were. It was an entirely American crew. Gosh. And, I mean, were there any kind of reports about what particularly happened on that crash that that you could find? So There there is an accident report that's available from the United States. Uh, It records that the aircraft was cleared for its flight. It had taken off around the time that was planned and it looks like what had happened was the navigator had uh, 
told the pilot to descend, but had maybe told him to descend 30 seconds to a minute too early. To be able to get a photograph of Burton Wood, they had to be below the cloud base. They climbed into cloud to cross the Pennines. He timed the flight across the Pennines, thought that they were clear of the hills and it was safe to descend out into clear air on the western side of the hills. But they descended just that little bit too early and struck the ground just short of higher shelf stones. The, the last bit of high ground that they could possibly have hit before they'd have been out over towards Manchester and out underneath the cloud. Gosh. Over the years, this particular crash site has, from what I understand, has changed quite a lot. You know, the, the weather at that particular part of Bleaklow is um, it's pretty brutal. I think that is possibly a nice way of saying what Bleaklow is like. Um, it, you know, is it kind of eroding? I understand some parts were kind of buried and then over the years they've kind of reappeared. And now, when I visited in the last couple of years, there's obviously, there's a lot of different things to see. Yeah, so I, over the years it has certainly changed. Uh, when I first visited the site over 20 years ago, there was more there than there is today. There was a lot of exposed peat. It, the site was, it was a mix of black and grey. The black peat and grey aluminium. The Moorlands for the Future project, which has been bringing life back into our moorlands, has reseeded that area. And it's now more of a green and grey. Yeah. Which is a real contrast to when I first saw it. The wreckage itself has deteriorated a bit with age. And it is mostly age now that's causing the deterioration as the aluminium's not pure aluminium, it's an alloy. And over the 70, 80 years since the crash, chemical processes within that metal are causing it to uh, break apart. Yeah, gosh. And, and what is there? Is it engines? Is it undercarriage? Yeah, all four engines are there. And uh, the three undercarriage units, so there's the two main undercarriage units uh, from under the wings one of those is the, the focal point of all the memorials and poppy reeves and a little bit further down the crash sites uh, the remains of the nose wheel but it's not got the wheels on it anymore it's just the leg with a cross axle i mean there, there was a story of the the chap who he and his son in the 70s took a walk out there and happened to see something sparkling in the sun and realised it was a ring. And then when he picked up the ring, he realised it was engraved and it was the pilot's ring uh, and managed to send that ring back to the family. I mean, that's incredible. Um, Even David Jones, who we met the other day from the Glossop Chronicle, uh, he told me off mic about when there was an anniversary where a lot of the elderly, at that time then, relatives of that particular crash came over to the UK and that same man led them out on the walk to the crash site but he said uh, David said he was there with a photographer and on that day the weather suddenly turned as it does there and a, a lot of these kind of fairly elderly people who weren't really dressed for walking in a moor uh, they all suddenly got kind of separated and it turned out they'd been walking in the wrong direction. They bumped into a, a bunch of walkers who said, why are you going this way? You need to go that way. And as they turned and started walking the opposite direction back to where they come from towards the actual crash um, site, the sun came out and when the cloud lifted, David said that he, the photographer and all 
the other people were all spread out across the whole of the moor um, and he said it was almost going to be um, you know another memorial of a very different kind and that really kind of I think showed people just how dangerous that particular moor is I mean he's, he's not alone is he really this is this has been um it's a beautiful place to visit I'm not gonna lie you really feel like you're just in a different planet, I think. Once you go drive over the Snakes Pass, there's obviously an easy way to cross from Snakes Pass. You know, there's no phone signal, and the sunsets that I've seen from Bleakler have been something else. But it can be that not everybody goes and they're prepared to go and walk to that particular crash site. Yeah, there's certainly been uh, more than a few people who've got lost going up there. <laughs> Although recently, very few people have been getting lost. I think. In the last couple of years, so many people have been going there with its social media famous status. The various trails out onto the hill have become so well-worn that it's now much easier to actually find that site and find your way back. Yeah, I remembered the first time that I did it and I wasn't that great at map reading and I did the whole asking people is the crash light over there <laughs> you know I did all that and then didn't have enough food and I was walking home and then the you know light was disappearing and wasn't really sure where I'd wandered off and you'd said actually even with the calls you get out for Glossop Mountain Rescue that is the bit where lots of people the same people do the same thing you need a sign there or something don't you <laughs> yeah so I mean I imagined for Glossop Mountain Rescue that's a busy place where you get to go and go and see what's happened there quite often in the last couple of years it has been busy but in the last year it wasn't it's it does seem to be that there was that spate when the paths weren't quite so clear and people were getting lost but now the paths are much clearer people yeah. aren't getting lost so we're not actually getting called to there so much anymore good. which is a good thing so the moral of the story is stick to the path yeah more or less <laughs> if you're not on the path go back to the path Let's just mention one really weird thing. So you had highlighted on your website about this particular potential plane, which you thought of, um, it's a, a late First World War biplane crash near Torside Reservoir. Just tell us a little bit about what you found out about that. So this would have been, what, 1919-ish? Yeah, ish. Uh, that was a, a rumour that came about. Ron Collier made reference to it, not in one of his books, but elsewhere and a couple of other people from the Glossop area who'd been interested in the crash sites in the 70s and 80s had made reference to a possible rumoured First World War era crash. It looks like there wasn't actually a crash at Torside. There may have been an aircraft that fell off a train that was being transported, but again, haven't been able to pin anything concrete down on that one. And so these planes, what type of planes were they? And, and I understand, were they being built somewhere in Stock Heaton Chapel? And so it possibly would have been on its way to Sheffield. What were these type of planes? Uh, these were biplane fighters uh, built of wooden canvas. That sounds like a kite. Uh, more or less, yes. It's a kite with a petrol engine. Okay, so that's one. If anybody here knows, I'm sure nobody knows more than you about a crash, then let us know. <laughs> I mean, that is just kind of 
look at that on two sides to, well one side of a4 i've written in the smallest writing just some of the highlights of the things that we've talked about your book your website go into a lot more details and then obviously you're doing some of the guided walks as well you know for people who are interested in going and visiting some of these sites you are doing walks. do you want to mention some more about what the plan is with some of those yeah so the the, the plan is to do some guided walks to various crash sites around the northern half of the Peak District. There'll be one to the B29 site uh, and the C47 in Lancaster on Shelf Moor. Uh, a visit to another site that is almost within view of where we're sitting on the north side of the Longendale Valley, uh, two Gloucester meteors which crashed in 1951 and a north bleak low walk visiting the Bolton Paul Defiant that we've talked about and another crash site near there and maybe the Blenheim on Sykes Moor. Gosh I mean uh, yeah you've you've got plenty to go at around here I mean it's I've obviously been reading a lot in my research about the various stories of people who've lived and worked around here I've been reading about the folklore the tales of ghosts and Longdendale lights because you know the area where we are here devil's elbow is just behind us i'll be talking about the folklore around that particular part but you know it's quite mad if you are ever walking down below along the reservoirs to look up towards here and just think you know the 36 people that died here and the two that survived you know that um their life was possibly forever changed from the experience and uh there are so many stories hidden amongst the heather and it's yeah it's great that you've obviously gone and done a lot of this research over the last 20 years Alan because it's I think it's important that whilst it's some people might say quite morbid chasing these these crash sites and um, you know sticking crosses in of Memorial of the Dead or whatever I think it's important that we keep these stories alive Um, because otherwise what was their service for you know they'd just be forgotten names of people who crashed and you know some of them might not even have gravestones yeah thanks so much is there anything else that you want to kind of tell anyone about you know with regards to looking up air crash sites any tips or pointers of where else to look i think the first stop would be google especially if you're looking for a relative you put their full name in and enclose it in quotation marks and then beyond there there's various websites about aircraft crashes around the uk and quite a few publications that you might be able to get hold of still quite a number are sadly out of print now a publisher will only do a print run and then once they're sold they're sold but a lot you can still get hold of there's always a way and i suppose that's important why we are doing this project um, for longdendale tales to create a digital map really because we've found with longdendale valley that there isn't a library there isn't really a longdendale library we're crossing different boundaries of councils here as well historical different councils of cheshire of derbyshire so the idea of putting things digitally to kind of make sure that these stories stay alive beyond the print of books beyond you know the stories that are told by word of mouth by the people who were here to tell it so if you have got a, um, a particular story or comment that you'd like to share with us, that uh, do get in touch. You can visit the map, which has uh, some pins of some of the stories, of some of the photos that we're talking about. I'll put a pin of my crazy little um, grid notes that I've used on this particular episode. Uh, it's all at longdendaletales.co.uk. In the meantime, I think we'll just uh, 
take in the view really and um, pay our respects and yeah enjoy the fact that it's not raining it's not snowing I think we've got lucky with the weather but we've still got to get back I've just got to add that caveat so wish us well and um, see you again